This is Solid Foundation Ministries with Dr. Pierre Couvert, building solid foundations through sound Bible teaching. Welcome back to Solid Foundation Ministries. Let me start out today by wishing everyone a very Merry Christmas. From Thanksgiving to Christmas is one of the most important times of the year for me because had Jesus not come, we would all be lost without hope. We should all be thankful for his gift of salvation. It is also one of the busiest times with all the shopping, mailing, and family dinners. This past year has been difficult for my family. My grandson and his wife have given us four great-grandchildren, two boys, and two girls. Even though they live in another state, they are a great blessing to us. What has made the year difficult is, both of the girls have been diagnosed with a degenerative nerve condition that destroys their brain cells. There are 13 different types of this malady, and they have the worst variety. We are told that they probably will not see their fifth birthday. As heartbreaking as this is, we know that God is in control, and that he has his purpose in this. The testimony of my grandson and his wife has been a help and blessing to many people. If they go before I do, it will make three great-grandchildren waiting for me in heaven. Like the song says, it will make heaven all the sweeter to see them there, and in perfect health. Your prayers in this will be greatly appreciated. The names are Charlotte and Sophie. Our biggest concern is that they don't suffer as this progresses. Now, let's get into the message for this week. Last week, we looked at some reasons why we should be celebrating Christmas and exposed some of the myths that have been told by those who say we, as Christians, should not be celebrating Christmas. This week, as I do every year, I want to remind us what we are celebrating. We need to remember whose birth is it and why we celebrate it. I also want to look at why it was necessary for Christ to be born. I want us to understand that Jesus was not just a man, and he was not some angelic creature that was promoted to some kind of godhood for his good works, like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. We will see that we are celebrating God taking on flesh, so he could save mankind from sin, death, and the lake of fire. Let's start out by reading the first four verses of John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This important passage of scripture does a lot to tell us who Jesus Christ really was. It identifies him for us as being God, and it also shows us that there is more than one person in the Godhead. First, I want to look at who this creator is. To do that, we must first answer the question, how many gods are there? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Lord in this passage is translated from the Hebrew word Jehovah. So we learn that Jehovah is being that one God. We could read this verse as, Hear, O Israel, Jehovah our God is one Jehovah. The interesting word in this verse is the word one. It is a Hebrew word meaning a compound oneness. In other words, there is more than one element to the oneness that's spoken of here as being one God or one Lord. An example of the use of this word in another place is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. 
That one and one flesh is the same Hebrew word here. The one flesh that it's talking about is a unity in that marriage. It's a unity. It's a uniting together, making them have one common goal, one common purpose, and uniting them together in the closest union that men can have with women. This is the only Hebrew word that is used in relation to God's oneness. In other words, God's oneness is a compound oneness. Another place we see this compound oneness in the word used in the very first verse of the Bible, where it says God created the heavens and the earth. The word that's translated God is Elohim, and the first part of the word is El and it means the Almighty One. There can only be one who is Almighty. If there is somebody else who is Almighty, then he would not be Almighty because the other would also have might that he could exercise. The last part of the word it makes it plural. So it says the Almighty One, plural. This shows a compoundness in God that isn't always evident to us. If we look a little further down in Genesis, it says, Let us make man in our image, and then it says, In the image of God created he him. There are many passages in scripture that show that there is a trinity, or at least a multiplicity of persons, within this one God that we call Jehovah God. Something we need to consider on this subject is, is Jesus the Almighty God, or is he simply a God? The Jehovah's Witness translation of the Bible says a God. Well, which one is right? If Jesus is simply a God, no matter how much verbal gymnastics you apply to it, there can be no less than two gods, and there would not be just one God. There would be a multiplicity of God. But if Jesus is God, at the same time he is with God, then we have the Trinity. Jesus is God with God. We also need to include the Holy Spirit in the Godhead, which gives us the three persons of the Godhead. In the light of the Bible's emphasis on one God, we have to conclude that there must be a Trinity. We see in some places that God created the heavens and the earth, and then we see here, in our text, that Jesus created everything, and there was nothing created without him. He is the creator of all things. Just to make sure we understand, remember that verse 14 of the same first chapter of John tells us that Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. So Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. If the Bible is true, there can only be one answer to who Jesus is, and he is God. Another thing that tells us that he is God is what Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 9. He tells us, he that has seen me has seen the Father. So, to look upon Jesus Christ is to look upon the Father. Now, there is something else we need to understand from the fact that to see Jesus is to see the Father. In the Old Testament, we have a lot of appearances of God. These were the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, when you see God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, this was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ coming down and walking with them in the coolness of the morning. That must have been a fantastic thing to live through. It really must have been a shock to their systems when they fell and could no longer do that. We also are told in the scriptures that Christ's words and Christ's works are the Father's words and the Father's works. This is one more indication that they are one and the same. Paul confirms this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, when he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Now folks, there's a lot in that verse. Of course, we don't have time to cover it all. 
But we're also told in Colossians chapter 2 that the fullness of the Godhead is manifest in Jesus Christ. The Bible says we're not to be spoiled or corrupted by men's teachings and men's philosophies. One of the biggest problems we have today is we get too much of our teaching from theology books and commentaries and not enough of it from the scriptures. We need to understand that the scriptures are the only thing that we can rely on 100%. This doesn't mean we shouldn't look at the works of men and consider some things that they say. They might look at something a little differently than we do, and we might learn something. But we should never take men's philosophies and men's teachings over the word of God. The Bible is always right, and we need to take it literally, the way it's written, the way we would normally understand it if we were speaking to somebody, speaking to a friend, or such as that. It is important to remember that words have meaning, and the way they're used means something. We can't just change their meaning to make them say whatever we want them to say. It should amaze us that in Jesus Christ we have the fullness of the Godhead walking around on earth in a body. How wonderful is the thought that God cared enough for us that he was willing to come down and live with us so he could save us. We are complete in him. We don't need anything but Jesus Christ. The Bible says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. He is the head of all principality and power. There is no power on this earth or anywhere in the universe that is not under the control of God. It is all submissive to him. Satan is submissive to God. Remember Job? When Satan wanted to do something to Job, he had to go to God and get permission. And God set the limits, and Satan could go no further than God allowed him to go. That's what it means to say that he's the head of all principality and power. This says a lot about how trustworthy he is. If he makes a promise, we know he can keep it. Let's take a look at Galatians chapter 4, and we'll see the purpose of Christ's coming. It says in verse 4, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Oh, the power of that statement. Oh, so much that's in there. But it says it was accomplished in God's time, in the fullness of time. In God's mind, it was accomplished before the foundation of the world, but in time, it had to come just at exactly the right time. We have the prophecies in Daniel chapter 9 of the 70 weeks of years, and we're told in those weeks of years that Messiah would be cut off after the 69th week, and the 70th week would still lie ahead. So it had to be exactly at that right time. Had Christ been born and then died in the 50th week, or in the 70th week, or anywhere outside of time, we would have known that it was not what God was talking about, or it would mean God was not able to do that which he promised to do. His birth had to be in the fullness of time. Then it says he was made of a woman. He was born of a virgin, as prophesied in the Old Testament. When the first new versions of the Bible started coming out, they changed that virgin birth to just a maiden's birth, and it changed everything. Those Bibles were rejected because of this change. He was born of a virgin, as prophesied in the Old Testament. He has no earthly father. Joseph was his stepfather, if you will. He was the one that raised him, but he was not his earthly father. There have been many myths told to try to show that Jesus had an earthly father, but he did not. He had no earthly father, and that's important because the blood comes from the father, and if Jesus had an earthly father, then Jesus would have had a sin nature just like we do.
When it says he was made of a woman, it only deals with his humanity. It says he was made under the law. Now that's something that's very important. Remember, as God, he is the lawgiver. He's called the word of God. He is the author of the word of God. The men who put the Bible in writing were only instruments in his hands, and he is the author of them. Yet, as a man, he placed himself under the law. It was necessary for him to do this because he had to submit himself to the law in order to live that perfect life that could be a propitiation for our sin. Did you use propitiation in a conversation in the last week? I doubt it very seriously, so let me tell you what it means. It means a sufficient sacrifice, a sacrifice that pays the full price necessary for reconciliation. Jesus Christ paid the full price necessary for our reconciliation with God. Now God can remain just and still allow us into heaven, but this is only for those who will turn from their way to God's way, place their faith in Jesus Christ, and trust Him fully for their salvation. It says to redeem them who are under the law. All mankind is under the law, and the law demands absolute perfection. Any violation makes one guilty. James 2, verse 10 puts it this way, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Here's something that illustrates what it means. I play several stringed instruments. I play the guitar and the mandolin and the banjo. Not very well, I'm sorry to say, but I do play them. And they have strings on them. Any of you who play those instruments has probably broken a string at one time or another. It doesn't matter whether that string broke at the tuning key or at the nut or at the bridge or at that point where it hooks onto the instrument or anywhere in between, it's broken completely. It's of no further use. And that's what it's like when we break God's law in one point, as James tells us. We are guilty of the whole law because the whole law has been broken. The law condemns all those who break it, and all of us have broken it in at least one point, most of us probably in most points. The only man to live perfectly and keep the law was Jesus Christ. No one else has done it before. No one else will do it since. Remember, he came that we might be made the sons of God. We're made the sons of God in two ways when we get saved. First, at our salvation, we are born again. We're born spiritually. We are made alive unto God. And this is so important. We need to understand that without this spiritual birth, there can be no understanding of the word of God. The Bible tells us, the natural man receiveth not the things of God, for they are spiritually discerned. At the instant of our salvation, we are adopted into the family of God. That means we have all the rights of sonship. We become sons of God and heirs of all that he has. When we're saved, it's Christ's perfect righteousness that is imputed to our account. It's not our righteousness. We have no righteousness in ourselves. The Bible tells us that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. The word used in this passage for filthy rags means some of the most filthy kind of rags you could ever imagine. As Christians, we're supposed to make every effort to live up to the righteousness of Christ, which he has imputed to us. The word imputed is another word we don't use every day. It just means it's placed in our account. We have an account that is full of Christ's righteousness and not our own, and we're to live up to that righteousness. Although we're not saved by works, we are saved to work, and we need to keep that in mind. 
So, what does it mean to celebrate? In the Bible, the English word is used only three times. It's used one time concerning celebrating the Sabbath in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 32, and it's used another time concerning celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. From these passages we learn that celebrations can include eating food because it's a Feast of Tabernacles, so you know there had to be food there. And it's used once stating that the dead cannot celebrate God. There are two kinds of dead that cannot celebrate God. First of all, the spiritual dead. They'll be celebrating something, but it won't be celebrating the true God. Then there's those that are dead physically. As far as our earthly view is concerned, they cannot celebrate God. However, the Hebrew word is used 16 times and almost always concerns keeping a feast or a special day. That's what we do at this time of the year. We keep a feast or a special day. That special day, today we call it Christmas, was originally called the Feast of the Nativity, as we saw last week. What does Christmas mean? Some people make a big deal about that word being a Catholic word. I think you know what the first part of the word means, it is Christ, our anointed Savior. Do you know what the M-A-S part on the end of that means? It means sacrifice. So what we're celebrating at Christmas time is the sacrifice that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, made when he stepped down, laid aside for a while his prerogatives of deity, become a man, walked on this earth, and lived as a man. That's quite a sacrifice in itself. He went on to the ultimate sacrifice of giving his life as a sacrifice to pay our sin debt on the cross. So calling it Christ's sacrifice for Christmas is not that far-fetched. There's not really that much that you could say that is wrong about using that term. It doesn't matter where we receive the term. It matters if we understand what the term means, and if we're celebrating is coming to be our sacrifice. That's what we ought to be celebrating at this time of the year. In the scriptures, there were many occasions for celebration. God ordained certain Sabbaths or special days that were to be celebrated. Of course, the first one and the one we're the most familiar with was the Sabbath that comes weekly. It was for the Jews on a Saturday. Its purpose was to celebrate the completion of God's creation. Christians celebrate a weekly Sabbath, if you will, on Sunday. We don't call it a Sabbath. Some do, but it's not called that in the scriptures. We celebrate on the first day of the week to celebrate Christ's resurrection, that new beginning that we have as children of God, the new start to our lives, if you will. We celebrate that on the first day or the starting day of the week. There were also seven other feast days or Sabbaths that were given by God that the Jewish people were commanded to keep. There were the Feast of the Tabernacles, Passover, and a lot of others that were commanded to be kept. The Jews were taught lessons figuratively through those Sabbaths. It would do us well to study those and learn the same lessons that the Jews learned from them. There are other feast days or fast days where celebrations were done that were not ordained of God. If you've ever read the book of Esther and paid attention to what it says, there was the Feast of Pyram. This was a feast that was celebrated to commemorate God's deliverance, his physical deliverance of the Jews, when Mordecai found out about Haman's plan to eradicate all the Jews. When Esther went to the king and exposed the plot, the king authorized the Jews to defend themselves, and he hung Haman on the gallows that had been built for hanging Mordecai. Rather an interesting story. They celebrated a feast because of God's deliverance.
They gave gifts one to another to show God's grace by their gracious giving of gifts. That's what we do at Christmas time. We give gifts, not for our purposes, but to show the grace of God and the gift that He gave us. Another feast we see in the scriptures which was not ordained of God is the Feast of Dedication. We call it Hanukkah today, and it happens about the same time as Christmas every year. It was a celebration of the rededication of the temple after it had been desecrated, a very important celebration in the lives of the Jews. We know that God didn't condemn them coming up with this celebration because in the Gospel of John we have Jesus himself participating in that celebration. He would not have done so if celebrations that were not specifically spelled out in God's word were forbidden. We need to be a little careful sometimes, as I said last week, for judging people for the celebrations that they keep, the days that they keep. Some people go so far as they won't celebrate their own birthday. There's nothing wrong with celebrating your birthday. It's a commemoration of the fact that God gave you physical life, and why shouldn't you celebrate it? Where would you be without it? You wouldn't. So what are we celebrating at this time of the year? This is really the bottom line of what I want to get across here. We're celebrating God's grace and offering a solution to the problem of our sin. God did not ordain sin. God put Adam and Eve through a test. They failed the test. When they did, their nature was solidified as a sin nature. I often use the example of my wife making me a ceramic chess set. When she made the pieces, they all looked beautiful. Every piece was perfect. But she had to put them in the kiln, and they had to go through the fire to be solidified or frozen in their proper form. While they were in the kiln, something else, not one of her chess pieces, exploded. As a result, some of the chess pieces have little pieces that flew off whatever exploded and were stuck on the chess pieces. They cannot be taken off. Fortunately, she made more than just the necessary number of pieces, and I have some good ones and some marred ones. The ones that are marred are permanently marred. That's what happened in the fire of testing, if you will, when Satan came as the serpent and Eve got Adam to sin in eating the fruit. The nature was then frozen in that form. What kind of nature did they have to pass on to their descendants? A sin nature. That was a problem, because, you see, a holy God cannot allow sin into his heaven. He needs to eradicate it from his creation. When God created us, he made us beings that would exist forever. There are those who will exist forever in the lake of fire, who will be spiritually dead and therefore will not have the eternal life that we have as Christians. They have to be removed or separated in some way, segregated from the rest of God's creation, because all the things we see happening in our world today, the terrorism, the abortions, all of the other things that we see happening in our world today that are so evil and so bad are the result of sin, and if those who are sinners are not separated from the rest of creation, it will continue to be marred, and it will not be what God intended it to be. This is a serious problem. It should be obvious to anybody who has a mind that the one who has broken the law can do nothing to remove the guilt that comes from breaking the law. If you go out and steal something, or you can make restitution, but you're still guilty of stealing. And God, being an absolutely righteous, just, and holy God, cannot forgive just because he wants to because he would no longer be righteous, just, and holy. We make a big deal about God's love today and how he loves us and wants to save us, which is true, but God can't, just because he loves us, forgive us. 
He must have justification for forgiveness, and that justification comes in the fact that Jesus Christ offered his life to pay our debt. God can now forgive us and still remain just, but there are conditions. The condition is we must come to Christ on his terms, which is repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. We can't work to be saved. We're not just chosen, no matter what. He can't just forgive us by saying, I'm choosing you to be forgiven, and I'm not choosing that guy, and it doesn't matter. I've made the choice. That's the way it's going to be. That would be an unjust God. We're also celebrating the fact that God honored us with his presence by coming down and walking as a man upon this earth. You want to know what God would be like if he was a man? Just study Jesus Christ. Learn more about him. In that sense, he is to be our example. Jesus came to be much more than an example, but he is an example. He's an example of how we should live our lives. He's an example of how we should relate to other people. The compassion that we should have on those who are lost, or those who are in difficulties, is the same compassion Jesus had. He's an example, but he's much more than an example. We should also be celebrating God's trustworthiness. Six thousand years ago that God made the promise to send the Redeemer. It was in Genesis chapter 3. He waited four thousand years so that in the fullness of time, he could send that his son to live a perfect life and offer that life for our salvation. He keeps his promises. Sometimes we don't think he keeps his them because in his purposes, he takes so long doing so that we don't think he will, but he always keeps his promises. Let me give you a passage of scripture on this. In 2 Peter 3, 9, it tells us that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In this verse of scripture, we see that God makes his promises, and because he sometimes delays in fulfilling those promises, men think he is slack. He's not. The reason he takes so long is to give us a chance to repent and turn to him. This means that he wants all men to be saved, and he gives them that opportunity. God could simply wipe a person off the face of the earth the instant he sins, and not give them a chance. Or he could say, well, I'll give them two or three chances, and that's the end of it. However, God is infinite in his mercy, and he will give us a tremendous amount of opportunity to repent, but we need to understand that his patience can run out for and individual. God is the creator, and as the creator, he has the right to command us to keep his precepts. That means do what he says. He's given the law to show us what his precepts are, and to show us how far we come from fulfilling what he tells us to do. It reveals just how sinful we are. His law is not there for us to keep for salvation, although we should make every effort to keep it, not for salvation, but because it's the right thing to do. His law is there to show us how much we need his salvation. It is the law that will show us our need of coming to Christ for a solution to the problem. The law tells us that the penalty for sin is death, and either we pay it ourselves in dying a death that sends us to hell and ultimately to the lake of fire, or we can allow Jesus Christ to pay that debt and receive his grace and his righteousness imputed into our account by faith and spend an eternity with God. The choice is ours. What I want us to remember today is that at this time of the year, we are celebrating the creator of the universe becoming man that he might live a perfect life and offer that life for our salvation. 
Make sure you keep Christ in Christmas this year. Don't worry about what you're going to get or what you're going to give. Don't worry about all the parties and the fun. Make this a year when you remember the Savior who is God become man, and who walked on this earth, lived and died that we might have eternal life. Let me give you one final passage from Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom, to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That's all the time I have for today. Be sure to come back next week for another message from the Bible. It will be the last day of the year, and I plan on bringing a message on the grace of God. I will be dealing with some misconceptions on this subject. I think it will be a blessing to you. Again, let me wish everyone a very Merry Christmas. You have been listening to Solid Foundation Ministries from Lenore, North Carolina. Dr. Kuvert has 35 years in the ministry as a former missionary and pastor. He is available for revivals and various conferences on missions, Bible, Baptist heritage, and the family. To find out more, go to our website, SolidFoundationMinistries.com or call 828-244-6505. Remember, the Christian life is not about you. It's about God receiving the glory.